we uh, finished the last talk by focusing on this uh, disease that afflicts the afflicts mankind, but it seems to be the particular affliction of our own time. The the disease of either exaggerating or minimizing the human person, uh, minimizing the human person as, as having no no actual destiny from God as being a product of accidental forces. On the other hand, on the one hand, but on the other hand of of so exaggerating the freedom of the individual that it it makes you know the that image that you find sometimes in in uh, Western medieval art of the snake biting its own tail uh, that it creates something that imprisons us imprisons us in our own claim that we can somehow find fulfillment in independence. And that is exactly what the Holy Mother of God did not do. And that is why she is precisely the uh, model for us, the model of what it is to be truly free. Mary said to the angel uh, in, in the uh, original text, the original Greek text of the Gospel, Idu, behold, ego, I am Duli, the slave to Kirill of the Lord. Behold, I am, you know, we, we say we soften it into handmaiden and all that, but uh, the original language is really pretty, uh, pretty clear. I am the Lord's slave, she says. And in that, in that statement, it is the ultimate expression of freedom. See, that's, uh, now, that is what the fallen world uh, will not accept. And increasingly, with increasing violence, uh, has turned on the Christian foundations of of what we call Western civilization, rejected those foundations because it sees the effect of Christianity as fettering the human spirit. Uh, because if one submits oneself, then one cannot find the fullness of one's one's life. Again, this uh, con- this construct that we have that there that there is something to to my life, some self fulfillment that I have to I have to discover. Now. To a certain extent, of course, as I mentioned in the last talk, we can find aspects of truth in some of these claims. Uh, we ought to be awed by the vastness of the universe. But in being awed by the vastness of the universe, with that comes the realization that we are the being that's capable of being awed. You see? So in being awed by the vastness, and certainly, certainly when one, if one still has the good fortune of being to go out somewhere on a starry night where the skies are actually clear and not, and not occluded by all sorts of artificial light, uh, certainly one, one feels on the one hand simultaneously so small in the face of all that, but 
with that smallness, there comes an immediate, immediate experience of expansion because there's the realization that it is the kind of creature that I am, the human being that is capable of this awe in the presence of the vastness of the creation and therefore in the inexhaustible vastness of the creator. So in that submission of what is uniquely human in me, in you, uh, we find simultaneously the de declaration that each one of us must make with, with Mary, uh, virgin, disciple, and mother, that I am the slave of the Lord. And the minute I, I with freedom, make that realization, allow myself to be capable of, capable of that realization, I am expanded. I'm expanded in a way that I could never expand simply by declaring myself independent, not, not needful of anything outside myself. So you see how, how we have the resolution there, uh, the healing of this disease. St. Paul, as you know, uh, identified himself also as Paul, the slave of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we can make all sorts of contrasts between St. Paul and Our Lady. Our Lady is a woman. Uh, St. Paul is a man. Paul, uh, Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was in essentially what could be called uh, a terrorist. And I don't think the image is, is that far removed. And the images of, of religious terrorism that, that we have now. Well, that's what Saul of Tarsus did driven by this zeal that was not according to knowledge, as he says. I persecuted, he says, and tried to destroy the church of God. He said to, to, uh, of himself that I imprisoned and beat those who believe in me. So he's very much involved in this false zeal. Which is, what, what is that false zeal trying to uphold? Well, it's to uphold an experience of religion that has all the answers, is self-fulfilled, as, as he, that's how he describes his trust in the works of the law, as he had been taught them. And then he came to say that I count <coughs> all of this uh, depending on the English translation you read, I count all of this as dung or refuse, or refuse or garbage. The uh, Greek word is is a, a slang word, and it's quite close to the slang word that we have in English. You know that I'm not going to say here in church, but that's what he calls his previous religiosity. He said, compared to the freedom. The freedom, what kind of freedom does, is Paul speaking of? Oh, when I was a Pharisee, I had all these religious obligations and I finally grew sick and tired of it and realized that I could just do what I please. <laughs> no, exactly the opposite. That he found in the, the submission of that kind of self-fulfilled religiosity when he, when he 
confronted the living God in Jesus Christ, he said, oh, no, it was all garbage. It wasn't, it, there was no freedom in it at all. So in speaking of oneself as a slave of Jesus Christ, and the, the disciple is one who patterns himself on the master. The disciple is one who is disciplined, uh, formed according to the pattern of the master. And so for Our Lady, and, and that is why in the Gospel, uh, Jesus is not content simply with the praise that the woman from the crowd gives his mother. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. By the way, um, unfortunately, most English translations, including uh, what we heard this morning in church, uh, do not really express what is said there by the Lord. When the woman says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you, Jesus does not say no. Jesus says yes. Yes and rather, he says. So he's not denying what has been said. How could he possibly be denying it? This is in the Gospel of Luke, for heaven's sakes. The Gospel of Luke, which is called by so many Our Lady's Gospel, the Gospel in Luke, which has the Magnificat, all generations shall call me blessed, says Our Lady. The Gospel of Luke, which tells us that Mary is full of grace. Another, uh, an expression in Greek that is a, a singularity, not used anywhere else in the New Testament. Ave, or, or here, uh, rejoice, really, uh, but it could also be translated as the Latin. Ave, the angel Gabriel says, here, ke caritomeni. Uh, that is very hard to translate into English. We say, hail full of grace, but that doesn't do full justice to it. It's an expression that means, that takes you back to the Holy of Holies in the temple, just as the Holy of Holies is overshadowed by the presence of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, the, or the overshadowing of God. And the angel Gabriel is saying to Our Lady, because it is, uh, and... I know this is not a, a talk in, in the grammar of the New Testament, but it is a perfect passive participle for those who know your, those of you who know your grammar. And that means that if we were to laboriously translate it, we would say, we would hear Gabriel saying to Our Lady, Hail, for you have been filled with all the presence of God and you remain full of the presence of God. That's what Archangel Gabriel is saying to her. So you have been in the past and you are now full of the presence of God. So that's all in Luke's gospel. So that when the woman cries out from the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. Jesus does not say, no, no, don't say that. He says, yes, but I will say something else. I'm paraphrasing now. Yes and rather, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. We usually hear keep it, but it simply says in the original, and do it. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. With the motherhood of bearing the word of God and nourishing the word of God, 
from the substance of her own body, comes also the reality that she is the one who hears and does, and thus is the model of discipleship. And the model of discipleship, as expressed in her own words, as well as those of St. Paul, is that of being the slave, the slave of God. And, of course, again, our images of slavery are pretty gruesome, and rightly so, because when fallen humanity uh, enslaves one person to another person, all sorts of, of horrible things result. But we need to get beyond, again, the limitations, beyond the limitations of, of images of the fallen world to see that despite the fact that enslavement or slavery has, has meant so often the loss of one's dignity as a person, yet there is a dimension of it that goes deeper goes deeper than that fallen meaning. Where does it go deeper to? It goes deeper to the very life, where, where we started in the first talk, the very life of the divine persons. That there is a degree, now uh, this may be uh, somewhat dangerous to say, but I will risk it, I'm quite, I'm quite sure it is Orthodox and Catholic, the Orthodox faith of the Catholic Church. By the way, just as a, I, I have come to say this now in almost every uh, place where I, where I go to speak. We have to learn once again, both uh, Catholics and Orthodox, to use those words the way they were used by the fathers of the Church. That's how we're going to, to heal, one of the ways that we're going to move, move toward healing this, this, really, really sad division between East and West. And the way we the way we will heal this is by realizing that both words, Catholic and Orthodox, are adjectives. So they, they modify something. And the way the fathers use them is that Catholic meaning complete uh, or universal, you can use it in both senses, but really katholu, having the whole, lacking nothing. Catholic, first used by St. Ignatius of Antioch in the end of the first century, at the turn of the, 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 between the first and second centuries. Catholic is a adjective that, that modifies the, the noun church. Whereas orthodox, is an adjective that was intended to modify the word faith. Uh, orthodox, orthos, right, dox, you can go in two directions from that, either to the right or the correct teaching or uh, to the right or correct praise. But the orthodox faith of the Catholic Church that's how the fathers of the undivided church use those two words. It's unfortunate that we've come to speak, we've, we've you know, uh, transposed both of them, and now we speak of the Catholic faith and the Orthodox Church, but that's not how they were originally intended to be used. And I think if both Catholics and Orthodox would agree to use them in the original sense, it would push us 
uh, a little bit further toward the goal that we have. But that's not what this talk is about. That's a little word from your sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Now, this, this uh, slavery, and, and I'm not going to uh, draw back from that, that word, this, this slavery, this giving oneself to the other, where do we find not the fallen dimension of that, but the true dimension of it. And as I said, we find it in the very life of the persons of the Trinity. Because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have it. All have it and all experience it. Thus, so one might ask, well, how is the Father who is the eternal source of the Son and Holy Spirit, how is the Father a slave? Well, because the Father is so humble, so humble, not, not, a, not a, a, an accidental trait, but part of the very essence of God. The Father is so humble that the Father can never be alone. That, and, and believe me, I, I am not, I am not saying, uh, giving this talk as a kind of exercise in theological abstraction. Our God, the God in whom we believe, the God in whom we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God whom Christians who confess the Orthodox faith of the Catholic Church believe in, and we are the only ones who believe it. We're the only ones who believe it. The continuation of Pharisaic Judaism, which is the only Judaism that survived all of the horrors of the first century, as well as Islam, which arose later, both of these expressions have the God that is alone. The God that is alone. In Islam, God is so alone that you can't have a relationship with God. Nobody can. Nobody can ever know God. Now, of course, the scripture tells us that there is a dimension which we cannot know God. We cannot know God as a divine person because we're, we have, we are a creature. But nevertheless, we are invited to know God. And again, that doesn't mean having information about God. God deliver us from the notion of knowledge as having access to information banks. That's not knowledge. Knowledge is relationship. When, when, uh, now I think maybe some of you were here a, a year ago that, that for, for my talks then, and I'll repeat something from that because again, I think it's good for folks to hear. When God says to Adam, as the book of Genesis records, uh, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve had been deceived and had declared themselves independent from God. And what's going to be the result of that? Well, then they're going to be independent from each other, too. And all, and all of the troubles of the human race ensue. But when Adam and Eve declare themselves independent from God, the serpent has said, you can be God without God. You don't need God to be God. Be God by yourself. And What's the first thing God asks? Where are you? And it's not some sort of 
uh, analogy in this point, is, uh, at this point. It's not some sort of what the scripture scholars call anthropomorphism. It's not God speaking as if he were a creature. God doesn't know where Adam and Eve has gone. He doesn't know. Because where they've gone is not some, some geographical point that he doesn't have information about. They have gone out of communion with him. They have chosen to be individuals. And God has no experience of that, so he asks, where are you? God does have, God has no experience of not, of the divine persons have no experience of not being in communion with one another. So when their creature does that, it's something that God has no experience of. And in the Byzantine tradition, at least, in our liturgical hymns, uh, so much of them speak of this search of God for his beloved lost Adam. And Adam, in, in this case, includes everyone that comes from Adam, beginning with Eve. And finally, as those of you who, who know the Byzantine services, when we come to church uh, for uh, during Holy Week, for the Jerusalem Matins and Holy Saturday, which I hope all our churches have, we sing those beautiful, beautiful hymns that tell of God coming to earth to find Adam in the person of the incarnate son, and he can't find him there on earth still. So he goes further. He goes further down. He goes to Hades. He goes to death. Death that is the opposite of God, who is life. God goes down to death, and there finally he finds his beloved Adam, and the loss is is healed. Now, again, with the Holy Mother of God. She is the one who, as a human person, as a creature, doesn't lose God. She is kekaritomeni. She is one who has been filled and remains full of divine grace. That is the best way of describing her. It's the way Archangel Gabriel described her, and I don't think you can ever do better than she finds the Lord through declaring herself at the word of the angel, God's slave, God's slave, because the Father, in begetting the Son, which he doesn't do as an act in time, it's an eternal act, therefore, again, we are creatures who live in time, so our ways of speaking are limited, but the Father is always begetting the only begotten Son. Always. It's not something that happened long ago, far away in, a, in another universe. <laughs> but it's something that is ever-present. The Father begets. The Father empties himself out in this begetting of the only begotten Son and the breathing forth of the Spirit, because the Spirit is the divine breath. And in that, the Father reveals himself as the one who, not by exception, but by the very heart of the Father's own being, expresses himself by emptying himself in the begetting of the Son and the breathing forth of the Spirit. 
The son who is begotten says he has no will but to do the will of the father who has sent him because, and that's when he's on earth, incarnate. But in eternity, the the son continually returns himself in joy and gratitude to the father. And the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, as we say in the creed, who proceeds from the father and rests in the son. So there is this, this wonderful interpenetration, not independence, but interpenetration that the Greeks, the Greek fathers called uh, perichoresis, which is to dance together. <laughs> wonderful word. And the Latins, well, you know, they're a little bit more legal and prosaic, so they translated this perichoresis into circumincessio. But that's, that's also to, to move around with, with each other. They live with and in each other. There is no independence. There is complete submission of each to the other. And that is the divine life. That's why, why do you suppose... In the Byzantine rite, this, uh, and, again, and it was the epistle that was read this morning, and it was read on Dormition Day, and it was, it's read on all, virtual, virtually all, uh, the feasts of, the, of our Blessed Lady. Uh, and to remind us from Philippians, from St. Paul, and St. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though being in the form of God did not consider his equality with God something to be clung to or grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a slave and was born in the likeness of men, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even the death of the cross. Now, that's in the Byzantine right now, in the Latin right, many of you are Latin right Catholics, you should remember liturgically that that's the epistle for Palm Sunday. It's read only once a year. And, and appropriately so in, in, in this tradition, because of course, Palm Sunday is the entryway to Holy Week. And you have these words of the Lord emptying himself, Becoming obedient to death, obedient, obedient to death as the, as the slave of the Father, even to death on the cross. And in the Byzantine rite, it's read over and over and over again on the Marian feasts, because that becoming in the likeness of men, emptying himself, pouring himself out, why does he do that? Is it some, is it some interruption, some exception? to the divine life? No. It is showing in time what goes on eternally in the life of God. The life of God is this mutual outpouring and giving back, outpouring and giving back between and among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when the Son comes into the world, he shows in time what goes on for all eternity. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are humble. And when a human person says, namely Our Lady and then others after her, like St. Paul and so many others, 
when a human person says, I am the slave of the Lord, that human person is echoing what the persons of the Holy Trinity eternally say to one another. So that is what it means for Mary to be disciple. She is uniquely, of course, there, there is, on the one hand, she is something old. By old, I mean, I don't mean old in years, but she is old insofar as she comes from the old creation. She is a daughter of, of Eve. Call her that all the time. She comes into being by the union of man and woman. She came into being in the same way that each one of us came into being, biologically. So she has this continuity with the old creation, something old. So there is that solidarity with us. Now, her son, who does not begin in her womb, but takes flesh in her womb as the eternal son of the father at his incarnation, her son takes that humanity from her, our humanity, not some other kind of humanity. There was a, there have been heresies along the way that have a kind of misguided devotion to our Lord saying, well, uh, our Lord, because he was God, couldn't take the same kind of humanity that we have. Must be some other kind of humanity. Well, someone like one of the great fathers of the church, St. Gregory the Theologian, said, well, what is not assumed is not healed. In other words, what Jesus, if Jesus didn't take our humanity upon himself, took some other kind of humanity, then it's of no use to us. He's of no use to us. It had to be our humanity, St. Athanasius says so. Our humanity, but he took it in a unique way. Our humanity, but a humanity taken from the sinless and pure virgin, who herself comes from the old, yet in her meet the old and the new. On the feast of uh, the conception of Our Lady in the womb of her mother, Anna. We celebrate December 9, the original date. We have to celebrate now for a couple hundred years on December 8th. But there is a be- very beautiful hymn that's sung in the office of that day that says, Behold a new heaven, a new heaven and a new earth is now revealed in the womb of Anna. Now, You'll recall that that expression, new heaven and new earth, comes, of course, from the Apocalypse, uh, the last book of the, of the New Testament. John says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And he is quoting the prophet Isaiah when he says that. So this new heaven and the new earth, that transcend, transcends, goes beyond the limitations of the old. The old is good. The old is good. God says so six times in the Genesis account. Every day of the creation, he says it's good. The old is also fallen. Fallen does not mean that it's become essentially bad. God never says that, by the way, to Adam and Eve. He doesn't say to them, I created you good and look how miserably rotten you come. I have to be rid of you forever. Fallen, to be fallen means that the goodness 
has become blocked. It can't reach the point for which it's intended. So good, but fallen. And so because of that irresoluble tension between the good and the the fallen, the old creation can't save itself. It takes a new act of the eternal God that brings into being the new creation, and the meeting place of that new creation is the Holy Virgin Mary, who is of the old, yet ushers in the new. And through that unique source, the eternal Son of God takes our humanity. So there is, you know, as the old rhyme says, something old, something new. Both, not not either or, but both and. We have here the beautiful icon of the Dormition, as it is called most officially in the Eastern Church, Hemesis in Greek, meaning the falling asleep, a place where people sleep is the dormitory. So, uh, Dormition, and you might, you of of the Roman tradition might be interested to know that in the older Roman missals and service books, it was also called, called Dormitio, Dormitio Beate Maria Virginis. So it's not some sort of strange Eastern word. Uh, when we look at the icon, generally the first thing that people, that people focus upon is the image of the Virgin on her deathbed, surrounded with the, the apostles and others. Uh, there's some versions of it that I particularly like, although they're pretty rare. They show uh, Enoch and Elijah, you know, who, who come from the Old Testament as the two who didn't die. And Enoch and Elijah are there with veils over their faces because they're mysterious fellows. Here is the virgin upon her deathbed, yet the center of the icon, as you can see, it's shown right here in that center, is what is, and this is, I have to say, uh, it's the icon of the Dormition is my most beloved icon of all icons of the church. I never, I never tire of it. You have this, what is called a mandorla, which means it is the presence in the old creation of the new. This is, this is the overshadowing glory of the presence of God. And the risen and glorified Lord comes to receive his mother, and the reason why I find it so beautiful is, of course, it's the reverse of the usual icons of Our Lady with her son, because she is always holding him. Here, he is holding her. And so he, so it's an exactly reversed image to show that now she has completed her life in the old creation, in which she has be, she has been uniquely the meeting place of the old and the new, and now she shares his life in, in the same way that he received humanity through her. So there's been this wonderful exchange. By the way, another thing to consider is that. In a, a traditionally appointed Byzantine church, uh, by, by traditionally appointed I mean one that has 
almost or, or everything the way it was kind of uh, meant to be done as, as uh, Byzantine church architecture developed. The place for the great fresco or mosaic of the Dormition in, in, was on the west wall. So right where Our Lady of is. Why? And, and of course, on the, well, here on the east wall, is in this church we have the, the icon of, of the image of, of the uh, Holy Trinity from, from the God coming to Abraham in the form of, of three angels. And also uh, we have the Virgin with Child here. And those are, those are icons often found on the east wall. But most commonly the icon on the east wall was the icon of the ascended glorified Christ. So... The icon of the sunrise on the eastern wall in the resurrection and the icon on the western wall of the, of the Dormition is the icon of the sunset. And it's placed there so that when every Christian has been brought here to the church for his or her burial, he or she is taken out to the resting place in the cemetery beneath the Dormition of the Mother of God that her passing is the image of our passing, even though everything that was realized in her passing has yet to be realized in everybody else, with her being the sole exception. You know, All the saints of the church, beginning from the apostles of the first century to those of, whose names we don't know who will die today in the grace of God, they all await the resurrection. She alone does not. She is beyond death and beyond resurrection. Neither the tomb nor death could hold the Theopokos. So, he who is the delight, says the says the, the church, he who is the delight of the life to come made his dwelling in you, and now he receives you fully into that delight for all eternity. She has entered into the day without evening. Now, this word assumption, assumption, that we have in Latin, it also has a Greek parallel. And many Christians of the East do not realize it. It's so, like so many things, it's not a dormition or assumption, but both and. And assumption comes from the word in Greek, metastasis which is to be taken from one place to another, one dimension to another. There's another word that begins with that Greek prefix, meta, and that's the word for the transfiguration, metamorphosis. Of course, we, that's used biologically to describe the transformation of the caterpillar into the butterfly. Metamorphosis, notice that the Lord's divine glory shines forth not only in his body, beautiful magnification that we sing on Transfiguration Day. We magnify somebody's God an owl. We magnify you, O Christ, the giver of life, and we glorify the transfiguration of your most pure flesh. Even before his resurrection, his flesh is transfigured because, again, who is he? He is the divine person, the eternal son of the Father. And 
that glory even per- permeates, and the gospel accounts of it are very explicit about this, even permeates his clothing. More white, more dazzling than the sun, not only his face, but his garments. And St. Mark even, even adds, no laundry on earth could whiten them like that. So that word meta, metamorphosis, beyond, beyond the form, metastasis, beyond, beyond one limitation, passing beyond limitation. Same word, by the way, that in, in the Greek language the fathers use to describe the Eucharistic transformation. They're all meta words. Uh, Saint Cyril of Jerusalem spoke of the metaboli of the, of the Eucharist. That's the change, that, that there is a change that occurs. He said that in the fourth century. Then, just a couple decades later, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, the, the little brother of Saint Basil the Great, says that what happens in the Eucharist, he had a more complex term, uh, a metastichiosis, a change in, in the elementary uh, substance. And then St. John of Damascus, 400 years later, in his exact exposition of the Orthodox faith, came up with the word metaousiosis, the change in the essence of something, the change in the isness, as I like to say. And that's what Thomas Aquinas and others took into the Latin as transubstantionis. So there, there is a, there is a kinship in, in these, in these theologies, but all of those words, I, I, I again, this is not a, meant, meant to be so much a, a discussion of theological terms, but I, I want to emphasize those meta words as transformation, transfiguration, passing beyond the boundaries. There's, uh, all in the, in the Byzantine rite, and it, and this applies also to the Latin rite. Everybody's got, if you t- take advantage of, it, of what's there in the tradition, there's that blessing of fruit on Transfiguration Day, and it's in the Western books too, though often neglected. Uh, there's a wonderful passage in Saint Irenaeus of Lyon. Saint Irenaeus of Lyon is the third generation father. He learned the faith from Polycarp, who learned the faith from John the Apostle. And Saint Irenaeus of Lyon wrote the famous Five, he did this in the third century, wrote, uh, wrote the famous five books against the heresies. And most of the heresies that he was talking about were Gnosticism. Gnosticism that said that materiality cannot be the bearer of divine glory. It's the same thing that we were talking about in the last time. And St. Irenaeus said precisely materiality is destined to be the bearer of divine glory. And then this is what St. Irenaeus says. This is a real real piece of, of gold, a treasure. St. Irenaeus says, this is in the fifth book of Against the Heresies. I don't have the text in front of me, but I've practically memorized He says that St. Polycarp taught me what he claimed St. John told him about what the Lord Jesus himself said. And these are words not recorded in the Gospel. This is a valuable thing, he says. I got this from Polycarp, who got it from John, who insists he got it from the Lord. That St. John said that the Lord said that 
when the regeneration of all things comes, the transfiguration of all things, the new creation, that every vine will bear 10,000 branches and every branch will bear 10,000 twigs and every twig will bear 10,000 clusters of grapes and every grape will yield 10,000 measures of the best wine. And when one of the saints takes one grape and squeezes it, another grape will cry, take me and squeeze me, I'm a better one. <laughs> now, these words are, are something because they are, they are claimed by oral tradition to come from the mouth of the Lord himself. That there's this, and of course, that expression 10,000 is biblical. It's like we would say billions and billions, myriads. So there's this abundance of, of the renewal of the face of the earth. And a life that death cannot disfigure any longer. That is what the mystery of this feast is. That is what Mary, virgin, disciple, and mother, that is the glory that she lives in. Again, some words from my teacher. I'll turn to another passage. And that is his message again through Radio Liberty on the, on the Dormition, in which he says this. Her death, now here a father will say much of what I've already said regarding the icon, so I'll summarize it. Her death is best explained through the Dormition icon placed in the center of the church on that day as the focus of the entire celebration. The mother of God has died and lies on her deathbed. Christ's apostles have gathered around her, and above her stands Christ himself, holding his mother in his arms, where she is alive and eternally united with him. Here we see both death and what has already come to pass in this particular death, not rupture, but union, not sorrow, but joy, and most profoundly, not death, but life. The words of one of the deepest and most beautiful prayers addressed to Mary now come to mind. And here, Father Alexander quotes the Akathist hymn, that beloved uh, hymn of the Eastern Church that we will sing tonight. Hail, bright dawn of the mystical day. The light which pours forth from her dormition comes precisely from that never-ending mystical day. In contemplating this death and standing at this deathbed, we understand that death is no more, that a person's very act of dying has now become an act of living. A person's very act of dying has become an act of, of living. It's exactly what we sing about our Lord Jesus Christ when we say, through the cross, joy has come into the world. In the minds of many Christians, I honestly think that even though they, they would never say this, there's something lurking down in us that says, oh, despite the cross, joy has come into the world. No, no. Through the cross, joy has come into the world. Not under it, not around it, not despite it, but through the cross, joy has come into the world that a person's very act of dying has now become an act of living, the entrance into the larger life where life reigns. She who gave herself completely as mother, as virgin, 
as disciple to Christ who loved him to the end is met by him at those gates of death which have become radiant. And there at once death is turned into joyful meeting, life is triumphant, and joy and love. So that's what we are celebrating now. And it is for her and for us. All we have to do is want it. And really want it. Yes? So, is the new creation a return to God's creation before sin? We would, the fathers of the church would not say that precisely. Because what was in the Garden of Eden is gone. It was lost. And in fact, in the liturgy, and this is a text that's read uh, in both the Latin and the Greek traditions on Holy Saturday. It's, it's called uh, from uh, a sermon of the Bishop Epiphanius of Cyprus in the East, and it's called an anonymous text in the West. But there the Lord and, and Saint Epiphanius, a, a bishop in Cyprus in the, in the fourth century, uh, is speaking of the Lord, and I may, I may say something about this tonight at the, at the little talk I'll give uh, when we sing the Akathist hymn. The Lord descends into death and there, and he, he raises Adam, he kisses Adam, and then he says to Adam, I am not taking you back. I'm not taking you back to the garden from, from where you fell. That is gone. He says, I have a better place for you. Your place is at the right hand of the Father with me. So does that answer? Okay. <laughs> yes.